There is truth. You can know it, live it, and be liberated by it. I'm Audrey Rinlisbacher. Thank you for joining me on this podcast where we explore how the truth can set you free. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, we're going to talk about this book, A Conflict of Visions by Thomas Sowell. If you don't know who he is, he's absolutely amazing. So look him up. And the reason I want to spend a little bit of time with you on the concepts of this book is because it has the power to reframe the way you see yourself in the world. And it has the power to help you make better sense of our culture than um, almost anything out there. In fact, Thomas Sowell himself said that this revised edition, edition of this book was his favorite among all the books that he had written. And he is attempting to give us the gift of thinking about something vitally important and seeing it in the world and recognizing how impactful it is, but it's something that's rarely talked about or understood. Most people don't even know about this construction. So it's not going to be easy. I want you to stay with me as I attempt to walk you through the major concepts. If you want to go get the book and read it, come into the library and we will have some good discussions about it. I will put some of my notes. I've written out this chart that I will put also in the library for anyone who wants to get a hold of that to read along, use alongside the book. So Politics and religion are the two kind of most heated areas. And I think one of the biggest reasons for that is because it's those areas where our personal beliefs start to impact society and where we're trying to build systems that are going to impact future generations. But what Thomas Sowell explains is that one of the biggest reasons why those areas are so debated is because they rest on something that he calls a vision. And the conflict of visions is about people who don't even often realize that they have a vision, living out, speaking out, and fighting for this vision that they hold in opposition to other visions. He whittles it down to two type, two broad categories of vision. Now, a person can be a little more nuanced and complicated in this. In some areas of their life, they could adhere to one vision and in another area of their life to another vision. But these two ways of thinking about how people see and view the world and the goals that they're striving for are just so incredibly helpful. And there are many, many people who really do land right in the center of one of the other vision and, and actively fight for that vision. So what is a vision? What does he mean by that? He says, visions are not mere emotional drives. We all have visions. They are the silent shapers of our thoughts where conflict where visions conflict irreconcilably whole societies may be torn apart. Conflicts of interest dominate the short run, but conflicts of vision dominate history. We will do almost anything for our visions except think about them. The purpose of this book is to think about them. He says the political battles of our day are a potpourri of special interests, mass emotions, personality clashes, corruption, and other numerous factors. Yet the historic trends have a certain consistency that reflect certain visions. And so our vision is our idea of how the world ought to be, of 
where society ought to move of the ultimate goals and objectives. And what's really ironic about this is that at their very foundation, at the very heart and core of all the visions, these two broader visions that he's going to talk about in this book are all about the common good. He says, all, like all people, make the common good paramount though they differ completely as to how it is to be achieved. I've said this before, but the first time I read Communist Manifesto, I was absolutely blown away that Marx talked about all these different ideas about how the world ought to be and how we ought to go about things. But ultimately his idea of where we ought to land was very, felt very familiar to me. It was utopia. It was millennia, uh, millennium. It was, it was an ideal future state where everyone shares and everyone's honest and everyone's kind and everyone has everything that they need and want. And to, I had kind of thought that that was a fundamentally religious idea, but it is at the heart of all these visions that we all want the common good. We want people to be taken care of. We want to eradicate poverty and addiction. And, and we, we can meet and agree on some of these objectives and some of these outcomes we'd like to get to, but we're going to disagree on how we can get there. And the constrained vision in particular is going to be very, um, very, I guess, careful about making any of those commitments mean that it's going to be very skeptical of the idea that we can ever really get there. Now, when I was reading this book and discussing it with some women that I know and love, there was quite a bit of debate early on about, um, these two visions. And before I get into what a vision is and what these two visions are and how they work and the differences between them, I want to make one thing really clear because it took us a long time to actually get here. And it, it took me a while to finally realize why there was a misunderstanding about the book. As far as I can tell, what Thomas Sowell is describing in this conflict of visions is not what God can do for mankind, but what mankind can do for mankind, what humankind can do for humankind. So it's going to make a lot more sense to you in a minute why I'm making that statement up front. But these visions are about how man can help man to get to this ideal state, how humankind can kind of pull itself up by the bootstraps and do something better than has been done in the past. And it's very, very important to recognize that God is no part of that picture. Okay. So having said all that, Let's talk about some of the things that, some of the ways that Thomas Sowell describes a vision. A vision is a pre-analytic cognitive act. It's something that um, he says, it's a sense of how the world works and it's the foundation on which theories are built. So it's kind of almost an intuitive sense of how things are and what resonates with us about the way the world works it's simplistic, it's subjective, it's a sense of causation, a hunch or a feeling, and it sets the agenda for thought and action. So it's actually something that's pre-analysis, pre-theory, and even pre-thought, which is, which is fascinating. 
It would be good to be able to say that we should dispense with all visions entirely, Soul says, and deal only with reality. But that may be the most utopian vision of of all. Reality is far too complex to be comprehended by any given mind. Visions are like maps that guide us through a tangle of bewildering complexities. So you hold this vision of how things are and how things ought to be, and then you go out there and find that evidence for your vision and you find the methods and the systems and the programs that will best help that message, that, that, that vision become reality in the social world, in the real social environment. And because there are certain core, core, core elements at the heart of each differing vision, it plays out pretty consistently in these two visions. What potentially distinguishes the two visions is their respective perceptions of the human potential. So I'm going to spend the next few minutes trying to describe these two visions to you and help you see the differences. And then we're going to talk about different people that have promoted these visions. There's kind of a genealogy to it. There's the person who influenced the person who influenced the person, and it goes back to the American founding and before it goes back to the 17, 1600s. And frankly, you can see these visions, even in ancient writings, the more you understand them, the more you can see this genealogy coming forward and this fundamental dichotomy about the nature of humanity. So what's at the very heart of these visions is a very simple concept. And that is, is human nature fixed or is human nature perfectible? And this is why I mentioned the element of God in all of this, because it isn't what God can do. It's what man can do, what humankind can do. I keep saying man, because, you know, that's the word we use to talk about all of humanity. Just be aware. That means mankind. That means humankind. That means humanity. It's all the people. Okay. So is human nature fixed or is it perfectible? The constrained vision is called constrained, and this took me a minute to get my mind around, but the constrained vision is called constrained because it's constrained by a couple different things. And the key thing that it's constrained by is the nature of, of humanity. There are certain things about human nature that are just never going to change. And there are certain laws of human nature that keep us, um, keep us basically the way that we are. And we need to work with those fixed elements of humankind the best that we can when we build our social systems. Now, the unconstrained, meaning there's no limits, says that human nature is perfectible. Now, if you're a religious person and you think that human nature is perfectible, this is why I'm reminding you again, this is not what God can do for humankind. It's what man can do, humankind can do for humankind. What can we do? Can we perfect ourselves? Can we become better and better and better and better over time? And the unconstrained vision says, yes, we can. So at the heart of the constrained vision is a problem. The problem is the nature of humankind. And the solution 
to the problem, the way that we fix those inherent flaws in humankind is we build institutions that put checks on them, that stop them from doing things, whether that's governmental systems, economic systems, legal systems, family systems. You know, if you think that people are going to embezzle in your business, then you put checks in your business. You put, you have people sign paperwork, but you also have rules and policies. You also check up on people. You know that some people are flawed, that they're going to whatever. So you put these institutions in place and the unconstrained vision says, we're probably never going to stop doing that until something radically changes. The history of the human race is such that we have to believe that there is a certain way that humankind are and that we have to work within the confines of that nature and that it's fixed. It's not changing anytime soon. And so the institutions create what they call trade-offs. And I didn't completely understand the trade-offs until I saw the trade-offs as, um, so the constrained vision has trade-offs and the unconstrained vision has solutions. And the reason that the constrained vision has trade-offs is because things aren't going to change. And so we have to just make the best of the current circumstances. Whereas the unconstrained vision says, yes, there is a problem. The problem isn't human nature and humans. The problem is institutions. And so the solution, the permanent solution is to dissolve the institutions that we have all around us. Now this goes, this is especially you can see elements of this in more ancient philosophers, but the real person that this really goes back to that everyone cites in the unconstrained vision is Rousseau. Rousseau said essentially that people were better before there was society, that we were rough. We were, natural, that natural man is actually what we want to get back to, that we had more harmony. We had more peace. We were more in our natural state of being and it's society and institutions that have corrupted us, that have made us evil. And in a sense, it's almost a nature versus nurture debate that we are constrained by our human nature and need to work within its limits or we are perfectible and the institutions are holding us back. So you can see right out the gate how these two visions, although they start out with the idea of the common good of humankind in common, they're going to go these directions very quickly. They're going to have totally different goals and plans because the constrained vision says natural man is bad or at least neutral and tends and does do things that are bad. Whereas the unconstrained vision says natural man is good. Society is the problem. And the constrained vision says natural man needs constraints. He needs to be constrained. And the unconstrained says, no, he needs to have no limits. It needs to be limitless. He needs to be able to do whatever he wants to do in as natural a state as possible. The institutions, the societies, the constitutions, the laws, they're holding him back. They're holding us all back. Now, 
what happens when you see that these two visions are in conflict is, and you see that they have completely different ways they want to go about solving problems. Okay. So I'm just going to give you kind of a laundry list of differences between these two visions. So you can start to see in other ways how this might play out. And again, if you want to subscribe to my library, you can get this whole list in there. And then I'm going to get into what this, who some of the players are and what this means today, right now, why it matters so much to you and I, but you might already kind of have some wheels spinning in terms of, well, you know, Audrey, you're always talking about the law of human nature. What about that? Well, yes, that is part of the constrained view that there is not just human nature, but there are laws of human nature given by God. Um, or I guess you could believe that they're just inherent in our human nature evolved over time, but they are a set of values and, and roles and even systems and traditions that keep the worst parts of human nature in check, but also help us elevate ourselves. They're the laws that help us to thrive. So in the constrained vision, because we're trying to make the best institutions that we can that will keep humankind in check, we are using trade-offs and we're creating moral incentives. So we're trying to punish bad behavior and reward good behavior so that people will tend more to want to do what's right. And of course, the role of religion in, in so many civilizations has been to be just that and to help, help encourage the moral to keep, to keep humankind in check. Now the constrained wants to create moral incentives, but the unconstrained wants to change the moral disposition. So what happens when those are your objectives is, and this is, this seemed like when I was studying this, it seemed like such a huge dichotomy. I, I'm going to go through the constrained first, and then I'm going to juxtapose it with the unconstrained because when you look on the face of it and you say, okay, Humankind is perfectible. The institutions are the problem. We need to tear them down. We need to get back to our natural state. You would think that that, and this is what's so fascinating to me because it isn't the way that it plays out. You would think that that premise would lead you to a system, to a vision, to, to, um, solutions and applications and, and, and systems that were very, um, focused on the individual and that were very liberating of, of the individual and, and that, um, that trusted people to do what was best for them. And that put the, a lot of trust in the common man because his natural state is so great for him. But actually the opposite is what plays out because you can see this genealogy of the thinkers and the promoters and, um, and the leaders, the intellectual and governmental leaders of these two visions, there are some that really encapsulate them. And that's not how it plays out at all, which is so fascinating to me. So when you look at the constraint that starts out and says, okay, natural man is bad. They, uh, na the nat humankind is bad. They, we need constraints. We can't save ourselves. Whereas the unconstrained says we can, we really think we can save ourselves. We can change ourselves forever. The constrained takes on all these traits. Okay. 
it's becomes very pragmatic. It's focused on what is and what has been. And in fact, just to emphasize that point, I'm going to read you about um, Chesterton's fence. So G. G. K. Chesterton was um, an awesome guy. Read all about him. But he wrote, I think it's in his book called The Thing, where he writes this, um, he, he gives this comparison of offense. So he's definitely a constrained thinker. And um, he says this, there exists in any kind of certain case, let's say, let's say there's an institution called marriage. There's a certain institution or a law Okay, and it's there and it seems like it's in our way. So he says, let's say for the sake of simplicity that it's like a fence or a gate that's been erected across a road. So there's something that we want to do. Say we want to just sleep with whoever we want to, or we want to just live with whoever we want to. We want to ignore the institution of marriage. We want to say that it doesn't matter. We want to get rid of it. We want to ignore it. Um, we want to play down its importance. So we'll compare it to a fence or a gate that's been erected in the road. He says, the more modern type of reformer goes gaily up to it and says, quote, I don't see the use of this. Let us clear it away. So I don't like marriage. I don't want to be connected to one person for life. I don't want to have the legal obligations and the financial obligations connected to a marriage and all of those elements that maybe it feels limiting. It's not freeing enough for you. So you want to get rid of this law or institution that looks like it's standing in your way. To which the more intelligent type of reformer will do well to answer. And this is actually part of what part of what Sol says is that they like name call each other and totally misunderstand each other because a big part of what goes on is that they are both defining terms very differently, which I'm going to get to Judith Butler in a minute and show you how that's absolutely the case. And so they're defining these terms really differently. And so they're misunderstanding each other. So they kind of name call. So this more intelligent type of reformer says, quote, if you don't see the use of it, I certainly won't let you clear it away. Go away and think, well, and do your research and figure everything out. And then when you can come back and tell me that you do see the use of it, I may allow you to destroy it. So his point here is that fences don't grow out of the ground. You know, centuries long, even millennia long traditions and systems that are somewhat worldwide that have been practiced by billions of people for long periods of time, got there for a reason and stuck around for a reason. And they were probably really important reasons. And when you try to clear away something like marriage, because it looks like it's in the way of the road you want to walk on, then what you need to do is completely understand why it's there in the first place. Who thought of it? You know, it doesn't grow out of the ground. People did it intentionally over a long period of time and it's been trusted and put stock into by many different cultures, many different religions for many different reasons for long periods of time. Why is it there? Why does it matter? And what happens when you get rid of it? Because until you establish the reason why it's there, you can't know what unintended consequences there might be by getting rid of it. 
and there's, th there's second and third and fourth order effects that we might not want that will come about because we got rid of it. So this is why the constrained vision says, we know that people do bad stuff. And frankly, we can't seem to stop them from doing bad stuff and they've never stopped doing bad stuff and they're still doing bad stuff. And we don't like the stuff that we're, they're doing. And so there's these institutions in place that have checked them and their behavior. And we want to know what those are. We want to hang on to them. And that's why the constrained vision starts to be a handful of things. It becomes very past looking, very tradition oriented. And it's, it's very focused on the common law and the experience of many, many centuries. It puts a lot of stock into things that have been around a long time, just like Chesterton's fence and doesn't want to get rid of them until we know why they're there. Um, it's much more individualized and actually it's much more trusting of the common person and their common sense, which is really fascinating because you would think it would might be the other way around. Um, the constrained vision considers the average person as smart and capable of living their own life. Um, also it gets into what's proven. The constrained vision tends to be proven, but limited. And it tends to be a hands-off approach to things, kind of like um, Smith's Invisible Hand, right? It's focused on property rights, judicial restriction, um, and justice in terms of equality of opportunity. So the unconstrained vision is kind of the opposite of those things. Rather than leaning so heavily on the experience of so many people and of the centuries, it's focused on reason. And it's a very collective rather than individual type focus. It's idealistic. It's focused on what can be, whereas the constraint is pragmatic. It's focused on what is. So it's cool because it's like opening up everything. Everything's just wide open. It, and and we can do this, we can save ourselves, we can become perfected, we can figure this out. And it throws away, to the extent that it's truly an unconstrained vision, throws away what's been pretty much almost without thinking too much about it. And it uses reason to try to reimagine a different future. What happens in the constrained vision is the building up of institutions that can check people and let them live their lives and give them a lot of individual freedom. But what ha ends up happening in the unconstrained vision is that because we don't really know how to get there and it's never been done and we're going somewhere brand new, we can't really rely on the past or on experience. And so we have to rely on the elite intellectuals. We have to get the smartest people together and they have to reason things out and figure it out for everybody else. And, and it has to, enforce these well-reasoned, uh, uh, according to the people who are reasoning them out, these reasoned ideals and new ways of being, new values, new systems, new programs, and force those on to the common man because, or the common human, woman, common people. You have to do that because they can't be trusted because they've been brainwashed by the societies that they live in. See, see, because the systems are the problem. The society, the institutions are the problem. 
And so the, the average person can't really be trusted to think things through and come to a better conclusion because he's just really entrenched in his culture and really indoctrinated by it. And we need someone outside of that, someone who can think through. So what ends up being created is a group of articulate intellectuals who reason things through and make the rules for everybody else and enforce those rules. And there's lots of these individuals who have promoted the unconstrained view over his over time, who've said, if you just force people long enough, they'll get it. They're, the indoctrination will fall away with future generations and they will be brought back to their natural man state. And, and it's okay if the current generations are sacrificed for the good of of the future generations for this, this place we're going to get to, that's going to be where humankind is basically perfected and everybody looks out for the common good and everybody thinks about everybody else all the time and puts the good of the group ahead of their own needs and even wants and, um, and sacrifices for the good of everyone. And so what ends up happening is that instead of the common law, Instead of what average people have found to work in their everyday lives, you have this idea of equity where you want sameness of outcome and social justice, which means you're enforcing equality of outcomes and you're very focused on the future. And, you and so you know that what you're pushing out is unproven, but it's limitless. So that's what makes it okay because you're gonna create the equality of outcomes. If you create the quality of outcomes and you force people long enough to live according to this reasoned plan you've created of how to build utopia and change, fundamentally change human nature by turning back the clock and moving them out of these societal doctrines um, back to where things need to be. So you're going to create equality of outcomes rather than equality of opportunity. And it's funny because justice is a really good one to look at. Soul talks about it in the book quite a bit. When you look at the term justice, it, they're defining it completely different ways. The constrained vision is saying, okay, yes, we want justice, equality of opportunity. And the unconstrained is saying, yes, we want justice, the equality of outcome. It's focused on the future and it tends to give a lot of judicial latitude. Uh, it wants to eradicate traditional systems. You can see why we've got to get natural man, natural humankind back to their natural state. It's very hands-on um, where you might have your more um, capitalistic Adam Smith, invisible hand, um, constrained vision economy, you're going to control the dollar, control the interest rates, control the currency, all of that in your unconstrained vision. You're going to have that focus. There's a mistrust of the average individual and there's a focus on um, where the constrained vision focuses on that there's areas where the government is exempt from getting in your life. The unconstrained vision says the government should get out of anything that has like a moral element to it. Okay. So that's kind of a quick rundown of the differences of those visions. And it's so fascinating to me that what follows follows from those <laughs> different ways of thinking. Now, 
One of the easiest ways to think about this, and this is what Soul kind of focuses on, he focuses on a man named William Godwin. William Godwin was the husband for a very short period of time of Mary Wollstonecraft. And she wrote Vindication of the Rights of Women and was kind of considered like the first feminist. She was, they, they are the parents of Mary Shelley who ran away with the poet Shelley uh, when he had another wife and they had children. She's the author of Frankenstein. So that's kind of how you can couch who William Godwin is. And he was this very Rousseauian free thinker who wrote something called the inquiry concerning political justice. And when it was first written, it's probably soul says the best written, most concise version of the unconstrained vision of what it is that those who believe in the unconstrained vision are trying to create in the world and what their goals and objectives are. At about the same time that the inquiry concerning political justice was written, the Federalist Papers in America were being written, which really very well encapsulates the constrained vision that we need to have institutions that hold people in check and even hold governmental people in government in check because we have to um, hold people back from their worst behaviors, et cetera, et cetera. And that means that we want to give them lots of freedom in their own personal life to do lots of things that they would like to do. Whereas in the unconstrained vision, it's it's, isn't it ironic? Like the constrained vision, actually the outcome of that is lots of personal freedom. The unconstrained vision is lots of, um, control. So these two documents are being written up. William Godwin's document is insanely popular right when it comes out for about a decade. It's really popular, but then the French Revolution happens and people start to see the connection between what's being taught, like Robespierre and the others, like what they're saying in their speeches, what they're promoting, how they're justifying the French Revolution. And it exactly aligns with the vision that William Godwin has put out in his, um, in his book. And so it's immediately unpopular. And it's been decently obscure ever since, because what you really can say is that the ideals, the values, the, the ideas, the goals of the constrained vision are what founded the United States of America and created the American revolution. The things that are, are really part of that constrained vision, you know, whether you're reading the declaration or you're reading the constitution or you're reading the federalist papers or even the anti-federalist papers, there's this consistency in terms of, we believe in this constrained view and that this constrained vision of the world. And that's why we need to build our nation this certain way. Whereas the unconstrained vision created the French revolution. And this vision of we need the elite to tell the masses what to do and they can't be trusted. And we have to uh, wipe away the elite and make way for a new elite who are going to make all the decisions and tell people how to live their lives until we change fundamentally the fabric of human nature. Now, 
The result of this is what we're watching in our culture right now. We are watching these visions play out every single day. And just in listening to what I've been putting forward and what I've been explaining from Thomas Sowell, you probably have had some ideas about people or organizations or policies or laws um, that align with one vision or the other. But as I got deeper and deeper into all of this content, it became more and more clear to me why certain things are happening that seemed confusing to me just a few years ago. Okay, so let's talk about the social sciences. This is a good example of the differences in these visions. This is what, how Thomas Sowell explains this. The concept of social justice thus represents the extremes of the conflicts of visions. An idea of the highest importance in one vision and beneath contempt in the other. So as you might guess, um, one group loves the idea of social sciences and one group thinks that the idea of social sciences is kind of ridiculous. The very concept of social science, which largely originated among those with the unconstrained vision, beginning with Condorcet in the 18th century, is often viewed skeptically by those with the constrained vision, if not rejected outright, as a pretentious delusion of being scientific where the prerequisites of science do not exist. So those who love the unconstrained vision are the ones that pushed for something called social science and who try to bring elements of research and findings and all of that into society, but people who are really deep, who really believe in the constrained vision think that's just absolutely ridiculous because human nature is fixed and things aren't gonna change a whole lot and we just need to create trade-offs to try to encourage people to do the right things that they need to do. And we need to keep two traditions and systems that have clearly served humanity for long periods of time. Um, so then the unconstrained vision, this is soul from this perspective of the unconstrained vision and the social sciences, loyalty, promises, patriotism, gratitude, precedence, oaths of fidelity, constitutions, marriage, social traditions, and international treaties are all constrictions imposed earlier than right now, when knowledge was less than it is right now, on options to be exercised later, so tomorrow, when knowledge will be greater. And all of these, all of those things that so listed were condemned by William Godwin. So Godwin is taking his cue from Rousseau and then modern day thinkers are taking their cue. There's this genealogy all the way through to people in, modern, in the modern day. So in the constrained, this is Edmund Burke. We know that we have made no discoveries and we think that no discoveries are to be made in morality, nor many in the great principles of government, nor in the ideas of liberty. And the unconstrained vision says, no, 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 we're gonna keep getting better, keep getting better, keep getting better. It reminds me of, I didn't go in and find it, but in Abolition of Man, um, oh, here it is. He says, um, no, 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 that's not it. 
he says that whoever thinks that we are going to come up with a new value or a new type of moral, he says, the human mind has no more power of inventing a new value than of imagining a new primary color or indeed of creating a new sun and a new sky for it to move in. So we're not going to figure out a new value and societies have always valued pretty much the same things and their societies are way more alike than they are different because humankind is just of a certain fabric in nature. Um, if you really are super into and I do think this is part of what's complicated about it, and that is if you really are an adherent of evolution, then you might really believe that humankind is fundamentally radically very different than it used to be, so then why wouldn't humankind continue to be different and better if we just give it a little nudge? Um, if you want to have a better idea, I just pulled out the giver. That is just one really, I mean, it's almost point for point what an unconstrained vision would look like. Now, it's got parameters and institutions that keep people in check, but, <coughs> but this council of elders that make all the decisions and that run people's lives and tell them what to do and that the common person has no freedom and can't make their own decisions is perfectly exemplified in that book. It's a, it's a good way, a good read to think about. In fact, this is Mary Shelley, this is Frankenstein, which I actually just read recently and I ran across this quote that I was like, oh my goodness, here's Mary Shelley giving us the unconstrained view as the, as the daughter of an unconstrained view prominent thinker. This is Frankenstein talking, this, no, this is the Frankenstein is actually the guy who creates the monster. It's not the name of the monster. The monster never really gets a name. And so it's the monster talking to Frankenstein, his creator, and saying, I was benevolent and good. It's misery that made me a fiend. Make me happy and I shall be again be virtuous. So if we can um, just make the right social environment, then people will just be good. It's, we haven't landed there on the perfect societal structure, so people are still being bad. But if we get these smart people at the top and we let them make the decisions for a while and just kind of force those better ways of being on everybody, then it'll work. The problem is, like Lewis explains when he's talking about the Tao or the, the law of human nature, that what makes human life work is admitting that there's a law of human nature and living within the bounds and then making improvements within those bounds. You know, I was watching, um, I was thinking about all of this and, and about how much, you know, Christians get beaten up, people of faith get beaten up because, you know, for example, the Bible says that, you know, slaves should obey their masters, but it's easy to forget that it was Christians that eradicated slavery. So, they were the ones pushing, you know, the, the, the first, um, the first groups pushing for the vote for women were Christians groups. So it's easy to forget that, um, working, and this is, this is CS Lewis's argument that working within the structure of what is, then we can make progress. But when we try to step out of that and make up our own morality and make up our own social systems and never look to the past and ignore what's been, gets us into a lot of trouble. Just like Chesterton saying, we have to know what the fence is there for. 
So there's a couple things I wanted to mention uh, just in terms of the application of these visions. I would love for you to go join me in the library and get into the community and have a conversation <laughs> about this reading. And if, if you read just the first couple chapters, you'll kind of, you probably got to read the whole book to really get into why things, you know, to really get the meat of it. But just the first couple chapters will give you a taste of what soul is saying. And he's so right. And, you know, I had read many of these philosophers and I knew the kinds of things that they taught. And I knew that there was, um, like a genealogy to it and that they were adopting each other's ideas, but just how, and, and I had noticed a long time ago, these threads of similar thinking and that they kind of seemed to be too. And he just put words to all the things that I had been noticing and made so much more sense of, you know, you can almost take different, whether it's a governmental form or an ideology, and you can place it almost whole into one of these visions. And it's, it's just so fascinating to look at. So one, one question that it really helped me find some better answers to was why in the world we're rewriting history. I've read the writings of the American founders and they were not perfect, but they were pretty incredible people. And I can't see any reason why we would beat them up to such a large degree, why we're ignoring the fact of, of how slavery came into being. And in fact, if you want to go look up Thomas Sowell, he's written an incredible book on the history of slavery. He has some amazing things to say about it, but you know, no one liked it. There were plenty of the people, people fighting it at the time. There were plenty of people in the constitutional convention that wanted to write it in the constitution right then. And there were, you know, um, people who came up with really great strategies for how it could be phased out. And there was an, a lot of selfishness and financial interest that kept it in play and et cetera, et cetera. So then the nation went to war over it and many, many good people, you know, fought against it and probably anyway. So all the original documents have always been there and people have read them and people have understood what this nation is, but this is when it clicked for me. American history. So America is a constrained vision nation. It was conceived by constrained vision thinkers. And it was formed in a very constrained vision way built on Blackstone and the common law that he wrote about and, 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 and brought together and systems and traditions. And it took the best of what had been formulated up to that point, And it tried to build on the good that had been discovered over the centuries from working within this framework of the constrained vision and tried to capitalize on all that, but it was very much a constrained vision project. So then the history was, has been written through the constrained vision lens because we're a constrained vision nation. Well, the unconstrained vision thinkers don't like that. They haven't liked it for a long time and they've been gaining headway and gaining followers for a century or a century and a half. And one by one, they've been trying to knock down the pillars of the constrained vision. So if you want people to stop believing in a certain vision and stop buying into it, then the, the most important thing that you need to do is show, expose its flaws, try to show why that vision doesn't work. So for the last 50 or so years, the major academic project 
has been to rewrite history through the constrained vision lens. And that is what is happening on, and it was in the college campuses, it's trickling down into all of our, um, you know, primary and secondary schools to try to convert people to an unconstrained vision. And that way you can make way for this council of elders, this, this group of intellectuals who is going to force a new value system and a new way of being. And so it uses these terms of equity and equality and justice and freedom. But like Sowell says, completely redefining those terms and talking about them completely differently. And actually the idea isn't for everybody to just do whatever they want all the time. The idea is to get people back to a state of nature. It's actually retroactive. It's actually not building on progress. It's actually not learning from the past. It's actually not trying to build on what we know. It's trying to get back to this state of nature and build a new value system and a new type of, not even a society because you don't want a society because you want unlimited freedom. And, and the constrained vision says you can have the most freedom within bounds. And the unconstrained vision says, no, we're going to open all the gates wide open. And then, um, but we have to control people because they don't know what's best for them. So as you start looking around you, you're going to start to see this shift from the constrained to the unconstrained vision in America. And that is why constrained vision thinkers are looking around them saying this landscape is totally unrecognizable. What is happening? Well, you're being more and more surrounded by people of an unconstrained vision. That's why it's so helpful for you to understand this. And if you're up for it, I would love for you to grab the book and come get the, the reading guide that's got my notes in it. And let's have a conversation about it in a library because it is unbelievably fascinating. I'm going to talk about two last things really quick as I finish up. One of the books that came to mind was this book, Educated. Now, this woman grew up in um, the Mormon. She's, she's, she's talking from being raised in an unconstrained vision, but it's a very distorted unconstrained vision because her parents are both mentally ill. It's very, very clear that it's an abusive home and that the constrained vision purported by her religion is very different from the quote constrained vision that she was being indoctrinated with in her home. They're not really the same thing. But the, the point is that in her mind, she was, she of course didn't talk about it this way or see it this way, but she was raised with an unconstrained vision. And so eventually she gets accepted to Cambridge. And I just pulled a couple quotes because this is something that I noticed the first time I read this. And every time I've had a conversation with somebody about this book, they didn't notice it. And I'm always shocked by, it. I'm like, you didn't really, you really didn't notice that. What happens is she actually cites the same authors over and over again. She says, I went to Cambridge and I studied these people and it totally changed the way I saw the world. And then I went back to them and then I went back to them and then I went back to them. And fundamentally what's happening is that she's raised with an unconstrained vision that's distorted and perverted by her family culture and it's unhealthy and ugly and she wants out of it. And she's introduced to the unconstrained vision 
and she embraces it. She changes her total outlook on life. Her complete worldview is completely flipped upside down. And she feels at peace because she has a new vision that feels like it's built on the shoulders of people who were important people who, who said, you know, who, who in the circles that she's now running in at Cambridge are respected and trusted. So first she goes to the second wave feminist thinkers like Friedan and Greer and de Beauvier. And then she realizes that there's first wave thinkers. And so she pulls out Mary Wollstonecraft and John Stuart Mill. Which Mary Wollstonecraft, and and if you're in the library, we'll tie this back into some other, I've got a book by Andrew Clavin and some other sources that tie into this and just have some really awesome conversations about it. But um, she says, I read through the afternoon and into the evening, developing for the first time a vocabulary for the uneasiness I'd felt since childhood. Because these authors are breaking down the unconstrained vision, I mean the constrained vision and and building the unconstrained vision in her, in her thought process. And she never had ideas. Um, diff she'd never been exposed to these ideas and they were invigorating for her and they changed her perception. Now listen to this. She said, John Stuart Mill says that womanhood is a subject for which nothing final can be known. The subject Mill had in mind was the nature of woman. Blood rushed to my brain. I felt an animating surge of adrenaline of possibility of a frontier being pushed outward. Of a nature of women, nothing final can be known. Never had I found such comfort in a void. The lack, the black absence of knowledge. Whatever you are, you are woman. So this limitlessness, this perfectly encapsulates what the unconstrained vision is about. You can't even define women. They're so limitless. We can't even know what they are. We can't even codify that in or, or, or put any flesh and bones around that because it's so limitless. So then again, she goes back. I wrote an essay on John Stuart Mill and again, choosing Mill as the topic. And then again, I began to read Hume, Rousseau, which I talked about a lot, Smith, Godwin, Wollstonecraft, and Mill. Smith is the only one who's kind of a, a constrained thinker in that group. Um, he has some unconstrained ideas sprinkled throughout, but, but out of all of the one, two, three, four, five, six authors, five of them the leading figures in the unconstrained vision. And it was fascinating to loop back to this book again, after I'd been in Seoul, hadn't read this book for years. I suspected that there was something to this. And indeed, uh, she says, I lost myself in the world that they lived in the, the problems they had tried to solve. I became obsessed with their ideas about the family. They're unconstrained ideas about the family and Godwin and Wollstonecraft were married and they had Mary Shelley right? and into Frankenstein. They're coming off Rousseau and human mill. So, um, so fascinating that again, you can see so many things are going to begin to click into place and make sense for you. As you see that people are coming at life predominantly from a, an, a uh, constrained or an unconstrained vision. And when you have people in your life, if you're watching this and you're a God fearing person, you're probably most likely to be of a pretty dominant constrained vision. And when you have people around you that leave that faith, they often move to an unconstrained vision. And so you can start to make more sense of why they are believing what they're believing. Last thing I want to mention really fast is Judith Butler. She is a dominant voice in queer theory, 
she has um, talked about some key ideas that have been really infiltrated into our culture. She gave a video, I will actually link these things in that um, reading guide for you in the library. She's talking about the nature of humankind and about um, her life experiences and the things that she's written and the things that she's taught and her advocacy of the trans movement and all of that. And she says, when we live in a democracy, we assume we're living according to certain principles like justice and freedom and equality. And yet we're constantly learning what justice is and what equality is. So we assume we're living according to certain principles. So, Hey, all of you constrained thinkers, constrained vision thinkers out there, you think you're living according to certain principles. We all seem to agree on the ideas of justice, freedom, and equality, but they're not what we thought they were. We are progressing. We are changing and we are becoming morally better. And, and we're learning what justice is and what equality is. And what she's really saying is by learning to adopt the unconstrained visions, definitions of those terms. And then she says, when gay and lesbian people started coming out or when trans people started living openly, something changed in the world by appearing, speaking, acting in certain ways, reality changed and it has changed. And when she says that this big phrase comes on the screen, changing reality, we are changing reality. And that is really what this comes down to. And that is why when you're an unconstrained vision advocate, you really believe that the fabric of reality can be changed. And that when you say, use words differently, and when you sculpt society differently, and when you talk about the patriarchy and you beat down the institutions and you ignore the constitution, that that is progress because you're opening the way for these terms to be defined differently and for more people to do whatever they want. And you're advocating freedom and you're actually changing the fabric of reality. And for the unconstrained vision thing, you're just left like, what in the world are you talking about? Reality is reality. We aren't changing it anytime soon. <laughs> Reality's not going to change. So that's, um, really, really fascinating. Um, I just, again, would love to hear more of those who have read the book. What were your thoughts about it? If you want to talk to me about it, go get into the library and let's do that. I will give you my notes and we can start a conversation, but I hope that this has given you a little bit of a starting place in understanding why the world feels like it's changing so fast, why certain things used to mean something and now they mean something different, why words are being redefined, why institutions are being beaten down. Those are all the goals and objectives of an unconstrained vision and it's working. They're doing it. They're moving the nation from a constrained vision to an unconstrained vision. And that helps us make a whole lot more sense of who we were, who we are and what we're going to become. And hopefully that helps you and I know a little bit better how we can insert ourselves in ways that are meaningful and helpful because we better understand all this craziness that's going on.
Hey, are you ready to have the truth set you free? Head over to AudreyRenlisBacher.com and get the Truth Seeker Starter Kit for free, where I walk you through the five steps for discovering and applying true principles to your life so you can experience their liberating power. See you there.